the interesting part is in, in retrospective, uh, you always try to spin a story around it. But if you make these decisions um, back then, it's of course you have, it's to some extent, it's not a random decision, right? But it's like very much influenced by kind of who you know and by what opportunities you have. So um, the story I, I kind of tell you now might not really reflect of how I got into it. quick word from our sponsor for this video, Rora. Rora helps top AI researchers and professionals negotiate their pay as a transition from academia into industry. Moving into tech is a huge transition for many PhDs and postdocs. The pay is much more significant and terms of employment are often quite different. Rora has helped over 1,000 STEM professionals negotiate more than $10 million in additional earnings from companies like DeepMind, OpenAI, Google Brain, and advocate for better roles, more alignment with their managers, and more flexible work. Rora recently released the 2023 AI Researcher Compensation Guide, which I'll link into the show notes. Click the sponsor links to get discounts and support this podcast. All right. Um, so hello and welcome everyone to who's ever listening to this particular podcast. Uh, I have with me on my show today, Dr. David Stutz. Uh, David is a research scientist at DeepMind working on building robust and safe deep learning models. Prior to joining DeepMind, he was a PhD student at Max Planck Institute of Informatics. And apart from that, he also maintains a fantastic blog on various topics related to machine learning and graduate life, which I think is really insightful for young researchers out there so I'll, I'll leave a link to that in the show notes but uh, we'll be talking more about his uh, past research work current work and his interests and his insights onto the graduate and research life so it's uh, good to have you on the show David welcome to the podcast yeah thanks for having me that was a very flattering introduction <laughs> so I mean a lot of people already know you uh, and your from your blog post and lots of other things that you have posted. But uh, can you explain to us like what was your interest point in AI? Like how did you personally get uh, intrigued about the idea of AI? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it was to a large extent um, incidental in the sense that when I started studying, so I already I already knew how to program and I knew the basics of computer science before starting. And then uh, in the first couple of years, I got really excited about like mathematics because mathematics was kind of the challenging part of the, my undergrad for me. Um, and so I started kind of delving more and more into, into mathematics. And on a computer science part, um, side, we had a, an excellent computer vision crew uh, where I did my undergrad. And they started offering computer vision and, and machine learning lectures. And I kind of found them to be on the more difficult side for, for computer scientists, a lot of math involved. I had a lot of kind of numerical analysis and numerical linear algebra lectures on the side. And so I found it really interesting. And um, on another side, it was also like incidental in the sense that, um, yeah, friends and, and people I studied with at that point that I did kind of exercises and homework with um, also got interested in that. So it was kind of, I think, a combination of being excited about kind of the the math side of things and seeing how kind of all this kind of fancy mathematics can be applied to kind of really relevant problems and at the same time having like people around me that that kind of encouraged me to yeah let's 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 take this lecture together and and uh, see how it's going and yeah. then it, it spirals from there right once you start with a couple of lectures uh, there are more advanced lectures you get to know the professor and so on you start doing your bachelor thesis and your master thesis there and so on um so i think that's how it started of course there are a lot of 
things that I find personally interesting about machine learning in general. Um, but I think, I mean, if I would have worked on, let's say, networking, I also would find a lot of things in networking interesting. So I think it's a combination of uh, interest and, um, yeah, being pushed by your environment to kind of specific topics and um, having the availability of uh, really good lectures and, and smart people and so on. Yeah. And I would assume like since you were on the majority of the side who people who who might feel intimidated by the mathematics and the things that goes behind building a machine learning model. So I would assume that it was the application side of it, like most of the people, how they use computer vision algorithms and make fantastic predictions or something that would that would have been the driving force. Like like you said, like if you would have been into networking, you would also stay with that. But like something that AI or maybe machine learning models do more than just applying it to certain set of problem sets that would have intrigued you more. Yeah, exactly. I think, um, so I think initially what I really liked is, so I had, I, I, I did a mathematics minor and I also did some addition, additional lectures on, on mathematics in my first two years. And um, in um, the, the first really kind of tough lectures I had, so in, in in my undergrad, you could choose like a minor, you could do like computer science with minor mathematics or minor business or something. And I chose minor mathematics, not a lot of people did that. Um, uh, the main reason was because the, the lectures you had to take in this minor, these weren't like lectures for computer scientists, yeah, right? So you you had basically, you, you took like all people that chose this minor and you just threw them into like the, the real mathematics lectures. And it wasn't always really designed very well. So sometimes you like, uh, people studying mathematics had like lectures like one to four, but you were thrown into like two and four and kind of they assumed that you would learn like the, the lectures in between by yourself. And the first one um, we were thrown into was numerical analysis. So it's basically numerical linear algebra and, and calculus. Um, so kind of how do you fit polynomials? How do you kind of do your uh, QR decomposition and all that stuff, right? So from a mathematics standpoint, this was kind of the really applied stuff. But of course, coming from computer science, um, you didn't just like do it and implement it, right? So you had to go through the proofs and you have to kind of understand the mathematics and then you implemented it in kind of C back then and so on. And I think that that was the entry point in, in thinking about like how nice you can apply these kind of mathematical principles to fitting problems, right? I mean, in numerical linear algebra, these are a lot of fitting problems like QR decomposition, SVD composition, and so on. These are like, in a sense, these are all kind of tools that in machine learning we use nearly every day, right? Um, so it was a very natural thing to then say, okay, yeah, we have machine learning lectures and computer vision lectures on, on the computer science side. And and uh, yeah, this looks like the, the, these people are actually applying all these tools. Um, and yeah, as I said, then there was also this kind of incidental thing of having having a good friend that Kind of did the, the mathematics minor with me and kind of also went in the same direction and um so it was like a lot of lot of good arguments for for going that direction and then we had very good lectures and the the group or the professor doing the lectures was really open to having kind of bachelor students join and having your kind of uh doing your thesis with him and so on and that's how it started um but yeah i think it's um for me it's really kind of seeing kind of going from the proof and then seeing kind of okay now you you prove that kind of this decomposition works and now like for this computer vision problem you can actually break it down to that right and um i found that very interesting and then um of course it kind of spiraled from there a bit if you think about all the basic machine learning things these are all in in a sense it's a combination of in my in my mind it's a combination of statistics and numerical 
kind of analysis or numerical kind of mathematics. Um, and, and I really enjoyed that back then because um, I also found it challenging compared to a lot of the the, the other lectures that, that we had to take or that we could optionally take. And um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'll just second that on based on few of the thoughts that I had, like, because when I got started into machine learning, like you said, like I was most uh, intimidated by the mathematics and the like for you, like you said, like you had to work on proofs and everything. But that was mm. the thing that I would consider as a con for me, like as in like, okay, okay. I, I like machine learning, <laughs> but I might have to deal with that. And yeah. it's completely flipped now. Like nowadays, when I work with uh, research, I think I'm working on like, how to how do regression models have like an inherent bias in deep learning models mm. and for that i have to dig a deep down a lot of mathematics like what exactly is a regression what exactly weights and like how do they how do the back propagation happens and how it affects the overall regression model on continuous variables versus discrete and nowadays like the coins have flipped like i like mm. that part more than just training a model and when i got started into psd i just thought oh this is something what i'm doing i'll be implementing code writing codes in pytos tensorflow and this is how going my psd going to be and nowadays, like training models is just like one part of what you do, but it's yeah. like what happens before that and after that, that really intrigues. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's, um, I think it's a good perspective realizing that. And and I, I totally feel with you. Um, my experience is also that, so the majority of, of people, for example, that, that I took these lectures with, most of them, of course, came from the computer science part. They were interested in computer vision and machine learning, but they didn't have the mathematics background. So for them, definitely the mathematics part was the difficulty, right? Because yeah. for me, it was kind of a bit the other way around. I had, well, it was, depending on how you see it, right? I was forced to, or I was fortunate to, to really go through like a lot of these decompositions and, and kind of fitting and, uh, and regression and so on in kind of very much mathematical detail to the end that you kind of prove things and so on. Um, so for me, it was kind of sitting in a machine learning lecture and saying, yeah, you, you can see that as kind of uh, an eigenvalue decomposition. And then you just get like your, your vectors here and there. And that's how it goes. So for me, that was very natural because I spent like uh, one or two semesters kind of digging into that. But I can see that for, for others, um, that's, that's kind of probably the most difficult part um, of getting into it. And another thing is, of course, that so when I started first lectures on computer vision and, and machine learning, it was in... 213. So there was already AlexNet around, but kind of deep learning hasn't really uh, penetrated the whole of, of computer vision back then. Um, so all of the, the machine learning was really, there wasn't a lot of deep learning, right? So you learn about perceptrons and multi-layer perceptrons, but this was kind of back then kind of the boring part, right? It was much more excited to get into like all these kind of random forests were very interesting. Um, also support vector machines were like super big, right? And support vector machines inherent, like you can have, there are lectures or they are, they are kind of researchers that just spend their time on, on kind of proving how these support vector machines work in specific spaces and so on, right? So there's a lot of mathematics behind there. And I can very easily see that for a lot of people, this is kind of a deterrent to some extent. Yeah. Um, but on the, on, the, on the positive side, I think that, that's great about that nowadays you have a lot of these tools very readily available. Right through mm -hmm. not only kind of TensorFlow and PyTorch and so on, but also like uh, SkyKit Learn and so on. So you can mm -hmm. use them before you actually understand them. And I think that's a good entry point because if people use them, they get curious, right? You want to know how it works. Um, whereas the other way around, first learning how it works, first going through the math, and then occasionally seeing how it kind of works in practice is, of course, the way longer uh, journey, right? Yeah. 
And this is what I would say like is like the iceberg of getting into machine learning, right? So this is like the surface point of barely scratching what machine learning looks like. So can you tell how did you, how like we talked about how, how you got interested in AI, but nowadays you're working on robust and safe deep learning model means like how deep models generalize to external data sets and how exactly the idea of robustness and generalization affects deep learning models. So how did you go from that journey of like, okay, I'm interested about these things to building like a full PhD thesis that you can claim you are an expert on. So what was that journey like? Um, yeah, I mean, I can go a bit through that journey, um, but the interesting part is in, in retrospective, uh, you always try to spin a story around it. But if you make these decisions um, back then, it's of course you have, it's to some extent, it's not a random decision, right? But it's like very much influenced by kind of who you know and by what opportunities you have. So um, the story I, I kind of tell you now might not really reflect of how I got into it. Um, anyway, so so this is how it started, right? This was during my undergrad. I took the first few lectures and um, I did my bachelor's thesis on, on computer vision back then. This was on, on image segmentation. So not a lot of machine learning. There were, of course, methods that used kind of um graphical models for image segmentation were very popular back then. So there was kind of some some machine learning, but not not the deep learning part that kind of consumed a lot of machine learning nowadays. And um I really enjoyed that. I kind of got to do a lot of programming in C, try to try out kind of a lot of different data sets, get to know like how how the thinking and computer vision and machine learning works, like how you evaluate um and so on. And um, I think then the first pivotal point in, in kind of getting me to a PhD was that um, my, my advisor back then suggested submitting the results of my bachelor's thesis to, to a um, German conference. There is a German conference on, on pattern recognition, uh, GCPR. Um, and GCPR back then had a, um, I think it was called a young, young researcher forum or something like that. So a specific mm -hmm. track of the conference. So this is not a big conference, right? So this is not like CBPR or something. Back then, it was kind of a couple of hundred people most, and then maybe like papers in the number of like tens instead of like hundreds. Um, but they had this specific track for like undergrads and master students to submit basically their, their thesis work. Um, and um, I was, of course, super excited to do this. And this year, the, the conference also happened to be in, in Aachen, where, where I studied at that time. Um, so I wrote like Today you would you would call it a short paper essentially. I wrote a short paper based on my bachelor thesis. I got to go to the conference. I first time meeting. Uh, really, we had great keynote speakers back then, and and uh, it was the first time that I actually was able to meet kind of a lot of the um, the the yeah well known researchers at least in Germany or to some extent also from Europe and the world. Um, and I got to present my poster and so on. And uh, this was kind of the first interaction with the academic world, I feel. And for me, it was like a very positive one. And I think that has that had a very big impact on that academia for me was always kind of a very natural way, a very natural kind of opportunity to pursue. Um, so this is how I started. And then through the masters, it kind of it kind of converged to Considering a PhD more and more, I did um, I did a couple of internships, most of them in in computer vision and machine learning. Um, but I, for example, also did an internship at Microsoft that was purely software engineering based, essentially kind of uh, lab development. Um, and 
yeah, it's not that kind of the, the Microsoft internship wasn't great, or it's not that I kind of didn't like industry. I always worked, or I mostly worked in industry throughout my studies to to kind of finance my studies. And um, but the 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 part that I found challenging and that that I was excited about was kind of okay, what what research question can you work in? Uh, how can you get like your first real kind of paper? Can you kind of go to the next conference? Um, and yeah, this is kind of how it converged for my master thesis. Then I this was also to some extent luck. Uh, I ended up in in Tübingen at the Max Planck Institute doing my master thesis there. Um, and this is how I got to know the, the Max Planck Society as a whole. So the Max Planck Society is a, I think, one of the biggest uh, fundamental research uh, organizations in Germany, and it has institutes everywhere. So you have like institutes for math and for physics and, and, and so on. And computer science essentially has a big one in Saarbrücken, where I did my PhD. And then it has one in Tübingen, which is for intelligent systems. So there, Bernhard Schulkopf, for example, is director there, right? Um, and I did my master's thesis there. And, um, and yeah, I, I really liked it. I liked the environment, a lot of international folks, um, very open, a lot of, lot of kind of really good researchers coming in to give talks and so on. And um, yeah, by that point, I think I, I intuitively already decided that uh, I want to do that for a couple of years. And um, the natural choice is doing a PhD. And from, that on, from there on, it was essentially just a question of where to do the PhD, how to do it, uh, and so on. Um, but maybe one one interesting thing I said earlier that there's a lot of coincidence going on. And one coincidence, for example, was that the lab I did my master thesis with in, in Tübingen. Um, so this was Andreas Geiger, and he um, he is famous for the Kitty data set uh, for, for autonomous driving. And I signed up for the Kitty data set um, um, during my master's somehow. And um, at some point, he just sent around an email saying, yeah, I have PhD openings. And um, I was really hesitant at some point, but uh, for, for a while. But then at some point, I just said, OK, maybe you just write back and you ask for a master thesis. And that's what I did. Um, so it was like a very random uh, random event, right? And that's what I mean is that you, you can plan and you can kind of have the best intentions. But sometimes opportunities come or go. And sometimes people push you in specific directions or like so sometimes, I mean, you, you can start your, your, your undergrad with the, the, the intention to study X, but if there's no lectures on X, then eventually you end up doing something else. Right. Um, so again, there is this kind of element of surprise and coincidence. And then there is of course me being super interested in kind of machine learning and, and computer vision in general. And, Finding it very challenging, finding it challenging to like write good papers and and, and publish, and um, that led me in the end to like want to pursue a PhD. I think. Yeah, yeah, I I love I appreciate the honesty that you have, and I think I can relate it a lot more. Is like if 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 ten years down the line, if somebody would ask me like, why did you get interested in medical part of AI? I mean, to be honest, like there are so many elements, like you said, and so many milestones that I can I can have like a general idea that I want to be a researcher in the field of AI. But like if if someone were to ask me specifically, why did you work on let's say like for my work, I'm working on brain age prediction. Like why did I work on that? It was purely mm -hmm. because my professor was working on, and I got a chance to read about her work and be a part of her lab meetings and then I got interested in that particular time but if like that was not the goal that I joined that lab yeah there were there were so many things that I could have been interested in AI and so it's like it's like like if looking back it definitely 
connects to a lot of dots like you said but yeah most of the time and i would say like majority like more than a majority of people in ai would be eventually in that line like not a lot of people would have like have very sharp goal like this is i want to do and this and like 10 years down the line they are precisely working on that topic yeah exactly and i think it's um i think it's a good perspective to have because it also reduces the pressure of it right of people um starting their their undergrad or masters and and wanting to to end up at a specific place or want to wanting to do like a specific phd or work on a specific topic but in between a lot of stuff happens and 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 this is not negative right being influenced yeah. by your surrounding by what your professor is interested in but what your peers peers are interested in what's kind of currently um on vogue in 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 the research community these are all good things in a sense right so yeah. you can have the best intentions to work on x but you get sidetracked right i mean uh yeah. i think generally if i think about a lot of people i met in, in academia it's like these are all kind of smart people um and most of them are generally interested in in many topics right so mm -hmm. it's not that i I kind of woke up like ten years ago and said, "Okay, I want to, I want to learn on, on, uh, I want to work on, on save AI or something." Uh, it's just that it's a challenging problem, and um, kind of uh, coincidence happened to kind of push me there. And um, it could have gone to other topics, and I would have found them interesting, and I would sit here in the podcast and talk about other topics. And, um, and I think sometimes it's it's interesting and also um, a bit sobering to. Uh, to consider the, this kind of element of of uh, having a a random world around you, uh, people influencing yeah. you, um, and yeah, sometimes it can be your professor that really wants you to work on topic X, and sometimes it can be this this random conversation over lunch, um, yeah. and afterwards you read this one paper, and that determines what you work on for a couple of years, right? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, talking about the randomness, so I think uh, you have been heavily focused on the idea of generalization and robustness in your uh, PhD thesis, right? So I think like more like nowadays it's it's getting better, but I think that was a time that people were using these terms interchangeably, right? So having a robust model means it would be like a generalized model to external data sets. And this would typically mean like if you have a data set out of distribution, the model is like robust because it performs well on uh, 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 non-IRD yeah. samples and also it is uh, generalized. So like nowadays, like can you can you describe the differences between these two? Like what do we mean by when we say a robust building a robust deep learning model? versus a generalized deep learning model? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, what you mentioned with the robust term robustness, it's of course, in, in, in the literature, we tend to overload terms. And then depending on which uh, line of work you're looking at, it, it might mean something else. And coming from computer vision, I mean, this notion of robustness was around, right? People wanted to be robust in, in object detection. You want to be robust to, to occlusion or to weather changes. Um, in in learning, you you want to be kind of some sort of robust to kind of feature changes or your handcrafted features that you have had back then, um, and so on. Um, the the kind of robustness that I got very interested in, and and maybe this is also uh, a bit to the story of how I got into Save AI, is that when I started my PhD, there was um, a couple of years before, there were papers basically showing that you can can kind of fool. Um, classifiers like usually deep neural yeah. networks by these very slight perturbations right so you have an image of a dog and you add like a perturbation that you can barely see like usually you can't see it at all and the classifier says it's a cat or it's a car or whatnot 
Um, and these are called adversarial examples. So, um, and then very quickly, of course, people thought, okay, I mean, if these adversarial examples exist, this is of course like a risk. Um, so we want to be robust against that. Um, so this is kind of the type of robustness that I worked on. Um, I prefer to call it like adversarial robustness because it at least tells you a bit that there are like adversarial examples um, uh, meant, meant by that term. And yeah, in terms of generalization, um, I think the 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 difference you can say if you if you want to be adversarially robust, you you can say you want to generalize to adversarial yeah. examples, right? So I don't think it's really um, it's really coming down to if you write a paper, you need to distinguish somehow. So I think people started to distinguish a bit between uh, kind of clean generalization. So generalization on like your test set or on like natural images, on images that haven't been manipulated essentially. And then adversarial robustness on the other side as generalization performance on these adversarially perturbed images. So I think that's kind of a bit the, the distinction. And I think the only well, one of one part of why this distinction became interesting is because to date, so this is still the case, um, training models that are robust to adversarial examples usually comes at a cost in terms of clean performance. So if you want to be robust against adversarially manipulated images, you usually lose a bit of performance on kind of your test set on your clean, clean, um, clean images. And uh, from there, I think people got very accustomed to kind of this uh, differentiation between robustness on the one hand and generalization on the other hand. But as you say, it's um, it's a fine line, and I think it's a very specific, um, uh, let's say, a very specific use case in 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 the literature of adversarial robustness. Outside, you would probably use it um, synonymously to some extent. Right, you want to generalize to out of distribution, which could also mean you want to be robust to distribution shifts, right? Yeah, and also in some of the experiments that you published, I think you also compared the idea of centralization and robustness, and you had some interesting findings that uh, this trade-off is not necessarily present always. So, can you talk more also about that? Like, because a lot of people, like you said, like even I had, like to be honest, before I read that particular paper of yours, even I had that particular idea, and uh, that was the assumption. Because a similar problem that we have been working on is like we use we use this huge data set of images that are MRI images collected from different institutes and there is this one very big institute institute called adni where we have mri images and it's like the publicly standard image data set that people publish their work on for alzheimer's and when we tested our model on adni it performs really bad like i mean it's not like bad by like a very small margin it's like bad by a big margin okay. but when we well, what use did you um what did you train on so you have like a different data set that you train on i guess Yes, yes. So it's similar. It's similarly like the in terms of the dimensions and in terms of the modalities, it's still the same. We are still using MRI images, but just collected from a different institute. So they have like okay. different imaging protocols, different pre-processing techniques. Like it's like just the difference of having a Philips scanner versus like a Siemens scanner. So mm -hmm. that kind of differences. And uh, when I tested on Adni, which I mean, to be honest, like Adni is like, it's a study from more than 15 years. So I don't know if they changed scanners or something, but it comes from a group of institutes. And but when we use transfer learning techniques where we fine-tune the model on the ADNI data set, the performance is up to the standard. Mm. So it really it really helped me question that what's really going on. And when I use 
techniques like drop out the performance increases so that mm. that was the idea even i had that yes if if i want to have a generalized model if i can decrease the error or uh, sorry increase the error on test set from the clean data set in your terms it will help but yeah i'm, I'm I'll, I'll let you have the stage like can you mm. can you can you debunk that myth of uh, the straight of that yeah exists? there's an interesting perspective because i mean in the end it's like a very inherent question to machine learning in general right you always like if you write it down in any textbook that you read on machine learning, like the first sentence, the first paragraph is, okay, we we assume we have this data distribution PX or PXY if you want to include labels. Yeah. Um, but in practice, of course, um, uh, finding out what PX actually is. In your case, uh, PX, you think that PX just entails MRI images of a specific mm -hmm. body part maybe. But there's so much more going on because obviously... If you now go to a different institute, different hospital, you have, as you said, different 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 um, processes. Different, like maybe the the patient lies into lies in the scanner a bit differently. You have different protocols. You have uh, different population, different patients, right? Um, yeah. All of these shifts um, are relevant, and of course, you want to be robust to them. Or in in other literature, in other papers, you would probably call it you want to transfer generalization yeah. to them, right? Um, in terms of like the 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 specific case that we usually looked at in terms of adversarial robustness, you can of course understand adversarial examples as a distribution shift, right? You can say, okay, we have the clean examples on the one hand, and now we add adversarial perturbations. Or it doesn't need to be adversarial. You can also say we just add noise or something. Then of course you have a new distribution that kind of like you could potentially even write down if you just add caution noise, you can write down how the distribution changes. But you have a distribution shift that you want to be robust against. And result examples are of course special because they're it's kind of a worst case, worst case distribution shift, right? You look at the model and you try to figure out, okay, how do I need to change the distribution to really perform or to really fool the model on all the examples and so on. But um yeah, I think the trade-off is is present here and there. And um in your case, it's nice to hear that you can could overcome it. In robustness, that's as I said, to date, still very difficult. And um, one interesting thing. So, as you mentioned, one question that came up very early is whether this trade-off is kind of in inherent trade-off, and in that you it's kind of inherent in the problem. It you can't get rid of it by kind of better methods or by um, I don't know, right? So it's like you have a data set. And for this particular problem, there's an inherent trade-off that you can't overcome. And there was some evidence for that. There was also some evidence saying that it's not necessarily inherent. It's kind of um, characteristic maybe of the learning method we have. Mm -hmm. um, and what we looked at is a specific method to obtain more robust models, which is essentially adversarial training. It's You can think about it as kind of data augmentation with adversarial examples, right? So during mini-batch SGD, you kind of update, uh, you, you kind of compute these adversarial examples and you train on them instead of kind of cleaning samples. And for adversarial training, you have like a very significant trade-off, right? Um, uh, I'm not sure if it's as significant as, as in your example, um, but but you can really spot it and it's too significant that you would say, yeah, that's kind of negligible for any use case. Um, and if it would be an inherent trade-off, then any any learning method you use would have this trade-off, right? And what we basically um, found, which I found very interesting, so I, from the beginning, I thought that I didn't like the idea of having this inherent trade-off, so I tried to kind of figure out ways around it. And what turned out to be the case in the end is that for adversarial training in specific, 
you just have higher sample complexity. If you want to be like you want to perform well, and additionally, you want to be robust against these adversarial examples, you just have higher sample complexity for your learning algorithm, which in this case was adversarial training, which means that if you would have infinite many examples that you can train on, then eventually you would you would overcome the trade-off, right? You would, of course, always like your clean performance would always be a bit worse uh, than if you just train normally. Right? But you can reach, let's say, the same clean performance as normal training, but you need maybe double or 10 times the, the examples. Um, and I think nowadays, this is to some extent like uh, an accepted hypothesis. Uh, there has been some follow-up work also conf confirming it. And there has been quite some success in terms of using kind of more data, using synthetic data, using kind of unlabeled data to overcome it to some extent. But I mean, you have to realize that at the same time, uh, we also made progress on just the clean performance, right? So of course we still lag behind the clean performance. That's kind of the definition of having higher sample complexity, right? Um, but uh, compared to where we were back then, you you would definitely make progress. Um, but this basically means that there might be a method out there that kind of overcomes the trade-off. But I'm, yeah, I'm not sure if it would be. Um, it, I, I would expect that there would be other trade-offs involved, right? You don't have a free lunch, so wouldn't expect yeah. it there and uh with machine learning in generally move in general moving to kind of bigger and bigger data sets and more data i think overcoming it with more data to some extent is uh or unlabeled data is kind of a realistic realistic approach and is it like an oversimplification if i say that adversarial examples are the same as data augmentation techniques or is it like is there something more to adversarial ex creating adversarial examples that can cannot be done using data augmentation um so i like to call it more like a net result data augmentation right um okay. so i think so it depends a bit right so if if your data augmentation is let's say random uniform random noise you have an image you sample small uniform random noise within your like L infinity ball or whatnot. Um, you can do this randomly, right? And of course, for a fixed example, if you sample like a lot of different noise patterns mm -hmm. and you evaluate the model, then you can either evaluate the average, right? You basically count how often is the model right on average across all these different noise patterns for one fixed example. Or you can do the worst case. You can look at, okay, I have one image, I sample like, a million different noise patterns and i select the image this noise pattern where the model performs the worst so where the model makes a mistake right yeah kind of a worst case style of evaluation and now adversarial examples are in this kind of worst case notion only that you don't generate like a million different noise patterns but you optimize right you have like a, a gradient descent optimization that instead of sampling noise patterns and trying that out basically like a brute force optimization scheme um you just do gradient descent and you end up with the right noise pattern quicker, right? Mm. So in a sense, these adversarial examples are like a worst case evaluation scheme. And now if you, uh, and, and maybe as, as just as a side note, this doesn't have to be noise, right? You can also say, okay, I want to have rotations of my images or I want like an audio, I want to have like a pitch shift, right? Or in, in text, I want to have uh, I want to swap, I want to have typos or something like that, right? All of this I can generate randomly and then have like this average case of evaluation. But for all of these, I can also devise methods of kind of adversarially perturbing, adversarially changing the examples. And then I'm on the adversarial example side. And uh, there are actually quite a few uh, methods and, and papers that explored 
having these types of adversarial examples, sometimes on noise, sometimes on uh, rotations or whatnot, and integrating them into training. And um, it, I think th this works, but it very much depends on what you're interested in, right? Yeah. Um, so for example, if you know that you have a specific distribution shift at test time, right? And you maybe don't have a lot of data from this shifted distribution, but you can describe it, right? So let's say you, you're training an image classifier and you know that at test time, um, the, the images might be flipped, they might be rotated, something like that. Then having this kind of adversarial style rotation data augmentation might probably help your generalization, right? Um, and so, so it's definitely a kind of a good description and, and it's a fluent, right? It's, you can, you can, it's not a, it's not a black and white decision, right? It's not like average case to worst case. There are like things in between and you can combine and so on. And I think nowadays it's very much very widespread, like data augmentation generally is widespread, but like auto augment, RAND augment and so on. These are to some extent at result, right? Because like you yeah. optimize, like these policies are optimized for something. They might not be yeah. optimized for robustness, but they are optimized to be particularly difficult for the model. Like particularly strong organization and so on. So I think it's like a continuum in between. And a lot of my work was on the very extreme, like we really want to fool the model no matter what. And a lot of reality is, of course, in between. Yeah. yeah. And maybe on this particular tangent, I want to ask a very open-ended question that th this is not directly related to the work that you have is, but one of the examples that you gave it when you started off your research in this particular direction is the idea that if I add noise to a particular image, I, I, rem I still remember that particular, uh, uh, I think, paper where they have like an image of cat, they add a noise to us, like as humans, we still see the same image, but it definitely fools the classifier. It classifies as completely like a panda or something. I forgot the exact example. Mm. But... Um, um, so, and one thing that you explained over here is like adversarial examples help the deep learning model learn that particular manifold better because we are creating adversarial examples that is still that still remains on that particular manifold that it is supposed to be learning better. But would you say that these kind of fooling techniques in some ways can still be on another manifold and like can still be uh, like a very foolish example of like a perturbed image so in a way because the reason i asked that particular this particular question is like th there could be an upper limit or maybe like an upper limit to the cap of the performance you can achieve using adversarial examples but it cannot it cannot guarantee like a generalized performance because there could be an image which is mm. like added noise or some kind of perturbation is done but it is completely on a different but fold but still the concept or like the the inherent characteristic of image still remains the same Mm. Yeah, that's a good question, and that these are kind of a lot of lot of uh, different topics you touched on. Um, I think, in general, how I like to think about it is that you have your data distribution. Your data mm -hmm. distribution lives in a very high dimensional space, right? Uh, images like on ImageNet, these are like thousands of of dimensions, and of course, you as a human, you don't see an image as like a, a an array of numbers. Right? Yeah. That's not how you perceive it. But the neural network does, the neural network sees an image as a number, as an array of numbers, right? So um, even if there are changes that are not visible to us, that's um, that's part of like how we work, how we construct it. Maybe our brain or like um, kind of how we are built is already robust to some extent to these changes, yeah. right? Um, but also, for example, 
if we think about noise that we that we that we used to see, right? So if you in the medical domain, uh, we talked about MRI, but also like X-ray scans and and CT and so on. Um, you have professionals that are trained on these, and um, and this is not something you grow up in. You don't grow up and running around in the world and seeing X-ray images, right? So you have more or less grown up people, right? You start studying and then you start med school and, and you are kind of grown up and your visual system is kind of more or less built to maturity and then your kind of brain has developed and so on. Um, and then they need to learn how to interpret these X-ray images, right? And for mm -hmm. them, it's also difficult, right? So I I, I know, you know um, students um, and they, they tell me, yeah, I mean, you you kind of you get used to kind of seeing more and more the more you kind of kind of look at X-ray images, but then you go to another hospital and they have a different system, and then it suddenly looks way noisier for you because you're you're not used to it, right? Yeah. So I think to some extent we humans also le uh, learn to kind of deal with it. Um, and the X-ray example is just because uh, it's a very concrete example where grown uh, up grown up humans actually need to actively learn to see through the noise where for you and me it's probably just like uh very noisy x-ray images and i think the same is kind of true for um for for neural networks to some extent you you have your data distribution that you want to train on and you expect kind of noise at test time or whatnot and um you want to take that into account and this of course changes your data distribution to some extent so it really depends on what you how you define your problem if your problem is clean generalization then you just train on clean images your test set comes from the same distribution no distribution shift your model performs usually very well and now adversarial examples can be seen as having like a slight distribution shift right or also random noise and i like to understand it as you have this distribution and this distribution kind of can be understood as kind of a lower dimensional manifold in your space Right, and as soon as you have noise types or perturbations or concepts even that are not in your data distribution, not in your training set, um, then um, they are not on the manifold of this yeah. kind of original training set. First, this is a very kind of abstracted concept, right? Because like your manifold is not explicitly defined for synthetic data. For example, we can define it very explicitly, right? If you have a, a generative adversarial network or something, we have a low-dimensional space that we sample in and we generate images, right? We know that these images come from a low dimensional space and we can make changes in the low dimensional space and see how it affects the images. But I mean, for natural images, of course, we, we, we'll probably never know this manifold. Um, but what we worked on a bit is essentially trying to figure out, okay, if we assume that there is this manifold, what do adversarial examples do, right? Um, yeah. And I think it's very natural to, to assume or to, it's very intuitive that these episode examples leave the manifold in some respect because we add noise that is usually not present in these images. And the stronger the noise, the further we are away in the manifold. And then data augmentation or episode training just assumes that, yeah, we, we take these perturbations as granted and we just include them in our manifold, right? Yeah. Which might explain a bit the, this trade off because. In adversarial example, if you have these uh, in adversarial training, if you have these adversarial examples, and you say, "Yeah, I just trained my model to also correctly classify the adversarial examples," then I make my problem obviously a bit harder because the manifold is suddenly different, right? Um, but in the end, it really comes down to to uh, to what you what you define your data distribution to be, what you define what you want to perform on. Well, right in your case, if you have 
a different institute, then uh, for some use cases, it might use cases it might be fine to over-index on a specific Philips machine, yeah. right? But if you want to deploy it on other hospitals, then then it might not be fine. So it's like I'm not sure if you if I kind of answered your question. I think there were a lot of points to go on. So maybe we can go back and forth a bit to clarify. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, yeah, I I I get the idea. I mean, like I said, like it's an open-ended question, and definitely it's no way like there is no way a consensus consensus on this that this idea is being solved. But I just wanted to throw it out and maybe get your yeah. opinion on that. Is like the idea of learning concepts, but it it it's very well that the way you put it is like how we perceive images of is very different than how computers or any kind of AI models perceive images. So it's definitely we need to have some kind of other yeah. conceptual work that needs needs to be done in order to solve this issue yeah but i mean if you think about it i mean there are adversarial examples for humans right i mean you yeah. can open textbooks in in school and there are these illusions right i mean you have this is very popular one with the two two arrows side by side which have the same length but depending on how you turn the arrows the left one or one of them looks longer right so there are these illusions for humans yeah. as well i mean people like to call them illusions but in the end it's just ways to trick the the human visual system. The difference is, of course, that these illusions are to some sort not on a, a pixel level, right? I mean, in, in episodic yeah. examples, they just perturb pixels. For humans, these illusions are more like on a semantic level, right? You try to trick yeah. the humans by exploiting a bias, right? You exploit right. kind of a bias that humans like to compare things right and so if you compare things then sometimes they look the same or not but in reality it's different so i don't think it's it's necessarily uh that we humans can't be fooled the difference is just that the things that we are fooled by are very different from the things that that ai is fooled by right um and part of the reason i think is that um ai still work a bit differently it's probably also maybe it's a representation problem maybe if we wouldn't represent images as arrays then i'm not saying that then ai would be perfectly safe and robust but it might be it might yield different result examples right so for yeah. example if you so in, in generative modeling if you if you uh, have a generative model of images for example right? i mean nowadays we have great generative ai um you can um you know kind of a a latent space that is very low dimensional right and I'm pretty sure that if you train an AI on kind of generated images, you can still fool the AI by finding a perturbation in your latent space, but suddenly the perturbation is, isn't on a pixel level, right? It's on your latent space, in a sense. Mm, yeah. right? So it's like, yeah, I think yeah, a lot of things involved. I think we we get close to um, getting very philosophical here, but um, <laughs> these are some things that I, yeah, sometimes I like to think about, about the fact that, yeah, humans are, of course, also very fooled by a lot of things, right? AI is just like, it's just so counterintuitive that AI is very good at things that we have difficulties with to some extent, but yeah. then very easily fooled by these obvious mistakes that like every child would get right. Um, and yeah, it's an interesting dynamic in a sense. 
yeah i think i think the the power that both both humans and ai have is very complementary like we are inherently good at few things that ai is not good at like we, you cannot be fooled but i can easily fool an ai model versus yeah. it can process huge chunks of data and create some great like you, you you can be tired and you can make a mistake versus ai cannot so i think it's just learning and like you said like i mean i would i would i would think that these philosophical conversations are really important for someone to think along these lines to mm. like as in what can be improved like for example when the attention model came out a lot of people tried and still are trying on vision transformer models because if you see it inherently changes the way how model sees an image right like the way yeah. convolution sees an image is like a block by block or like a small matrix versus the attention model tries to compress the image all at once or maybe mm. at, at some certain level so i think i mean i'm not saying that vision transformers are replacing cnns but it's like a new way of processing information that could be better in few ways worse in few ways but it's like worth exploring so like no, definitely. Kind of... I mean, as as a side note, vision transformers turned out to be more robust than CNNs or ResNets to, on yeah. on maybe not on. I mean, at result examples, you can also compute them for vision transformers, and they work very well. But at result examples are, of course, they might look different for vision transformers. But there are like you have architectural changes, and of course, this kind of impacts like how you kind of generalize to specific specific distribution shifts or uh, where you're robust to specific types of noise right uh, if we think back this was kind of one of the things of um, one of the motivations of convolutional networks right that we have these translation invariant kind of things yeah. there's a lot of work on having more than translation invariants have like invariants to other transformations so I, I definitely agree that there is uh, that there is this component of different architectures and so on and uh, we we've tried out a lot of them. Uh, there's of course a lot of there's of course always this argument how similar is it to the the, the human visual system and so on. Um, I'm not sure if that should be necessarily the target, but I think it's interesting to see how these things inform, right? Because humans like to think in attention, so uh, vision transformers, attention models are a very natural way to to kind of approach these things. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's interesting times. Yeah. And and one of the other drawbacks that I feel AI models definitely do have is the idea of uh, it does not have the dimension to say, I don't know. So inherently, the the idea of deep learning model is to maximizing the low confidence, right? So even if it is very low, low on a particular prediction, it will try to maximize the probability. And that is inherently very, very wrong in terms of like learning the concepts or maybe like the just idea of on, on manifold learning. And like you have a follow-up work for this one is something you have like con like uh, confidence calibrated adversarial training work. So can you tell more about like what is what what was the I mean we definitely talk talk about its intuition like what is the problem at hand but what does that particular work do and what do we mean by making the model learn that okay I don't know is also a plausible answer in many of the cases. Yeah, that's a good question, and I think um, I mean we already covered a bit this kind of idea of manifold and adversarial examples. To some extent leaving the manifold and you can show this very concretely in experiments that if you have a data set and the data set implicitly defines a manifold then you can show that locally at result examples kind of try to leave this manifold in almost an orthogonal direction so it's very natural to think that okay and and, and I, I also said that at result training or data augmentation essentially says that okay we want to be robust against these changes so let's just include include them in our learning, in our learning problem and 
we kind of thought, okay, maybe there is kind of a, not a smarter way, but a different way of doing it, which would be that you acknowledge that some distribution shifts you don't want to class, class, necessarily classify correctly, but you want to, as you say, uh, reduce the confidence. You want to indicate that this is something that you you shouldn't classify on. This is something that that might might have been manipulated and so on. And confidence capable adversarial training does exactly that in the setting of adversarial robustness, but there are very similar methods, for example, in order of distribution generalization, where you can do the same thing. You just um, train networks on on your on your or your data set as regular, but then you you uh, kind of add out of distribution examples and you force the model to have like a uniform distribution or like a low confidence prediction on these out of distribution examples. And we did a very similar. Um, or, or kind of we did we we did something along that lines for adversarial examples. But adversarial examples, the problem is that clean examples and adversarial examples are by construction, by definition, very close together, right? We usually right. constrain adversarial examples in terms of often of an LP norm, right? We say L infinity adversarial examples, the difference between the perturbed and the clean image is within an epsilon in terms of your L infinity norm. Um, so this, of course, has some difficulty. So you, you can't just say, okay, let's force the model to have low confidence on adversarial examples because this will just like not work very well. This will not be trainable. Yeah. So what you have to do is you kind of have to guide the network um, a bit more. And we did this by explicitly saying, okay, on the clean examples, you should just reduce cross-entropy loss, just do high confidence predictions. But the further we go away with our adversarial examples, so the, the, the larger the distance between the perturbed image and the original image, the more and more we want to converge to a high entropy prediction, so like a, a uniform softmax prediction, essentially. Um, and there are some kind of challenges here and there on how you do that. For example, the usual methods you use for computing adversarial examples are not really applicable anymore because they usually operate on maximizing the cross entropy loss. But if you have a uniform or like a low confidence prediction, this is not necessarily the the kind of right way to to kind of fool the model. And um, there are some challenges during training. Uh, it's usually a bit more computationally expensive. But um, what is actually very nice in in terms of in terms of the results is that you get you overcome the the robustness accuracy trade off to some extent. So the the trade off we talked earlier about that adversarial training usually results in lower performance on clean examples. You can avoid that to a large extent, um, which. I think to date, there are no adversarial training methods that, that can do that. Um, and I mean, again, this is kind of intuitive because adversarial training just makes the problem harder by including adversarial examples. And confidence capable adversarial training basically says, okay, we still we we still want to do the original problem. And we want to just say, okay, we don't know on everything else. And um, another benefit is that you generalize a bit more to the type of adversarial example that you encounter. So one problem with adversarial example, adversarial training is that as with data augmentation, essentially, you are only robust or you only generalize to the augmented examples that you see during training. So if mm -hmm. let's say you do data augmentation um, on, on rotations, then you might not be robust to like flips or to crops or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and the same is with adversarial examples. If you compute adversarial examples a specific way, for example, you constrain them in the L infinity norm, at test time, you're not robust against adversarial examples that are constrained in the L2 norm or uh, against other, other types of adversarial manipulation. And confidence capable adversarial training overcomes that, that the, the robustness generalizes a bit better. 
Um, and this is, of course, the, the notion of robustness also changes a bit. At result training, the robustness means you correctly classify all at result examples. In our case, robustness means you reject, you assign low confidence to at result examples, indicating that you don't know, right? Um, so I think there's no right or wrong. I think it's just like a different perspective. And I think nowadays, um, a lot of people are thinking along these lines because we, we have these really um, powerful models. Um, but for decision-making, you still have, like if you want to do classification or something, you still have this inherent problem that, okay, you, you are interested in specific distributions, but if you allow the user to kind of input anything or something, you want to you want to know where, where you, when you can trust your model and not. And confidence calculator reserve training was kind of a, a step in that direction from the the adversarial robustness perspective. Yeah. And I would be curious to know, as in, did you uh, did you in this particular data set where you did the experiments, did you assume that there is no class imbalance? The reason for that is, like, if if there is an inherent class imbalance, like, without using these kind of techniques, you would obviously assume that the model will be always low confident on the uh, minority class. And in a way, when we use data augmentation, it tries to overfit. So that is like, if you if you see like the normal training method, if you use just like an oversampling or standard data augmentation techniques, the model will be always overfit on the minority classes. Mm. And in this case, like, I mean, this approach would be useful when you have like a very perfectly uh, level of all class labels, but like in cases of where you don't have perfect class balance, this this would, like, I, I, I mean, I would say it, it would create like a different design of experiments, but um, it, it, needs, it needs to be updated, right? Like just, yeah, I would like to- No, it's, uh, it's a good comment, I think. Um... We didn't particularly look at that. I mean, most of the standard data sets that, that we worked with back then were like balanced by construction. Um, I know it is well known that in general, machine learning, of course, uh, doesn't kind of, doesn't assign accuracy in a fair way across classes. Um, yeah. There are a lot of different perspectives on it, right? I mean, you can see it from the class balance perspective. There's a lot of work on that. You can see it from the fairness perspective and so on. Um, also for robustness and for adversarial training in particular, it, it is well known that for some classes, it just works better than for others. Some classes are just more difficult than others, right? And I would assume that the same also holds for confidence paid adversarial training. It might be that for some classes, the, the, the model learns to be, um, maybe too confident on more difficult classes or yeah. not confident enough on difficult classes. It's uh, definitely an interesting question. I, I never tried it out. Um, as soon as you have the option to, essentially what you do is you have an option to abstain, right? You have an option to reject examples. So you have, instead of like, previously you can be correct or you can be incorrect, but now you can be correct, you can be incorrect, or you can abstain. Of course, you can correct, you can correctly and incorrectly abstain to some extent. So evaluation gets a bit tricky, but yeah, there are a lot of, like you, you could, for example, ask, okay, on which classes do I abstain more or less? Right? And if you now... Yeah translate that into a fairness world where you don't talk about classes, but you talk about attributes like gender or or um, countries or whatnot, then of course you want to make sure that if you have like a classifier for something, you want to somehow make sure that you don't abstain on, on, uh, on one gender and yeah. correctly classify the other gender, right? So it's like, um, it's definitely an interesting question, but um, yeah, we didn't look at it uh, in particular, but I'm I'm pretty sure that there are that that would be an interesting experiment to do given that at physical training and 
like deep learning in general yeah. has this general problem of treating classes separately and then if you have class imbalance of course it gets worse if you have like a long tail and so on yeah that makes sense and 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 i think one of the few works that i think you have brief amount of time working on it and but I, i'll i'll let you describe more is and to me it's fascinating just even from a surface level is the idea of using deep learning based accelerators so deep neural networks accelerators so can you like i mean i won't give a shot at like what exactly it is but like to me like i i had a brief time working on binary neural networks so it was okay, like very cool. fascinating to uh, learn that how just a simple modification can help you with like the uh, improving the memory performance of whatever computational resources mm. you are using the computation time that is needed still not sacrificing uh the performance and at some point like when i worked on that like i just thought oh then it goes to show that okay there is a lot of redundant computation that is being done mm. but again i i won't give it away but can you tell a bit about the idea of using deep learning for creating hardware that is much more specific to uh deep learning architectures and what was the work that you worked on yeah that's a good question maybe let me let me get a step uh, take a step back and connect it to to the general work so i mean by now it might be clear that i spent most of my time working on these uncertainty and robustness related problems and adversarial robustness or robustness in general is usually viewed through the lens of the input space right so you have a model the model have weights and inputs and it makes a prediction and you want to be robust to inputs that you haven't encountered before inputs concepts that you haven't seen perturbed inputs adversarially perturbed inputs and so on but there's of course the weight dimension right the weight dimension mm -hmm. and um when i started working in this direction there was already for example a lot of work on on quantization right i mean people were curious okay we do all this in kind of floating point this is like expensive we have millions today we have like billions of weights and so on um and yeah, we need to run this somehow. So why don't we just use less bits or less information? And this worked, of course, surprisingly well. I think a lot of people were surprised. You were surprised that you can get away with like binary quantization and so on. Um, but what is essentially, so this is one perspective. But the other perspective is if you do quantization, you introduce a quantization error, right? You introduce errors on the weights. So you can see... So yeah. Can, can can you also clarify what do we mean by quantization quantization oh, yeah. over here? Yeah, that's a good question. So in this case, quantization really means on the weights, right? So we want to get away off like storing weights in floating point format, and we, we might want to have binary weights. We want to store weights in in as eight bit integers or something like that. Um, so we want to spend less bits, less memory on the weights, and this of course has two components. So I think nowadays. The literature mostly converged to to kind of and, and this is like this is really in the signal processing sense i'm talking about quantization right i have a signal the signal in this term is the weight and i want want to quantize it into a specific number of bits to mm -hmm. fit into my memory or whatnot um and uh, nowadays so i think the literature started with quantizing weights you want to have less memory requirements for your weights because we were developing all these big models and they were expensive to store, obviously. Um, but you can spin this further, right? It's not like just about the, the storage. If you store your weights only 8 bits instead of 32, this also means maybe you can do the computation in 8 bits instead of 32, mm -hmm. right? So suddenly you do more like integer-style computation in your processor than like expensive floating point and so on, um, which means that then you also have to quantize your 
activations, you have to quantize your um, gradients and so on. So nowadays, I think it's very standard that if you talk about quantization, usually people assume that the whole, at least at test time, the whole thing is quantized. Your operations are quantized, your activations and your weights and so on. Um, but when I st started working on it, I was really mostly focused on the weights. Uh, why? Because quantization of the weights you can see as a robustness problem. Because if you go yeah. from a floating point number, let's say like 1.2, and then you want to quantize it into a specific number of bits, 1.2 you might not be able to represent. You can only represent maybe 1 and 2. So you round yeah. off the 1.2 to 1. So you incur an error of 0.2. Right. right. So now the question is, how does the network react to that? Right. You know, you do a forward pass after the quantization and you notice, OK, suddenly the accuracy is lower. Right. So you can see it as a robustness problem in the weights. You introduce errors in the weights and then you observe what changes. And this is kind of the angle that, that I went into it. And now coming to these um, accelerators to the hardware is um, the goal of deep network or deep learning accelerators is you want to have a very cost and energy efficient ways of running, right? So just for inference, we just want to run newer networks because like usually you do it on your GPU, but of course the GPU needs kind of a lot of, lot of power and it might not be necessary just, just for inference. Um, and the other thing is of course, like if you think about cars or robots, you just want to have like more energy efficient, smaller hardware and so on. So these um, deep learning accelerators do exactly that. They basically are, custom made for a specific architecture or for a specific problem. They're custom made for a specific quantization and so on. Um, and one main purpose is really to be energy efficient. If you want to deploy it in robots or in autonomous cars and so on, you want to be energy efficient. And one way to, and, and there are limits to it, right? There are physical limits. I, I had physics A levels, but a lot of that knowledge is gone. But I think in uh, on a high level, you have the chip, the chip consists of like your processing units, your memory and so on and different levels, kind of a hierarchy of buffers as, as any regular PC, any regular CPU does, um, only like in a smaller scale and, and more optimized. Um, and you can't, and, and one main influence point for the power consumption is the voltage. And um, you can't just reduce a voltage forever because it's like, your processing units, your memory, they all need like a minimum voltage right. to work reliably. And the main constraints for a lot of these chips is really the memory. So if you reduce the voltage, so I think uh, power, the, the, uh, the energy consumption scales quadratically with voltage. So you really want to reduce voltage because you get a quadratic advantage. Um, and the first bottleneck you hit is memory. Processing units usually don't require um, that high of a voltage, but memory often does depends on the type of memory and so on, but you scale down voltage. And for some memory types, what happens is that if you reduce voltage, at some point, the memory becomes faulty, right? Mm -hmm. So reading and writing kind of your bits uh, becomes unreliable. So in the easiest case, right, for inference, I have my weights stored on a memory. So now I reduce my voltage and now I want to read these weights to do an operation, right? So when I read these weights, I have errors because the memory is not reliable. So sometimes I read a zero where I really should have read the one and the other way around. Um, and this also introduces errors, right? So on top of the quantization errors, we now have these, these bit errors essentially. Um, and this is um, something that, that we studied um, um, together. This was a collaboration with, with IBM Research. Um, this was a um, postdoc that I met at, um, at, a, at a summer school. 
Um, and I had a talk there on confidence capabilities or training. And we met um, and, and she said, this, this this could really be relevant for what we are trying to do. And this is how it started. And it's an interesting project, definitely, because it has very tangible impact. Um, and the, the the problem was really, how can you train neural networks that are kind of robust to not only the quantization, but yeah. also to kind of these bit errors in the quantized weights. Um, and it's a very, for me, it was really an exciting project because, I mean, you learned about binary networks and I also had to learn about quantization. It's a very different, I think there, there is a lot of literature on it, but it's kind of in the intersection of, of hardware, of high-performance computing and machine learning. So there are different conferences that you read about, um, different people that you interact with. Um, nowadays, there's, for example, um, MLSYS, which is um, an, an ML systems conference, right? Where you have a lot of these works that are kind of in this intersection of this. Um, so I found a really interesting project um, uh, to work on. And it kind of relates, right? I mean, as I said, in, in retrospective, you can always frame it that it fits your PhD, but it's really, I mean, I really like to, to view it as a robustness problem. And that's yeah. how we kind of worked on it. Uh, only that at the end, what you can do, and uh, unfortunately I never really worked with the, the actual chips, but we had data from actual accelerators and you can really show that, yeah, uh, we can now get the same accuracy, but at much lower voltage. And we would save like 20, 30% energy, right? Which yeah. is a very tangible, tangible thing. So that was a cool project. And like tying this back to the idea of like there is no free lunch right like there's a very popular theorem like do you think like when we use these kind of techniques where we are trying to cut down on like optimize heavily on computation and memory resources are we in any ways sacrificing the performance or maybe the test set is limited right like you you you, mm. you hold out a test set where you are performing all of these experiments but let's say when you apply this model into the real world would you guarantee that this model would have learned because we are intentionally introducing some of these errors right like in this case like not in the bit errors but at least in the case of binary neural networks or something approaches that are similar we are intentionally making uh some errors so that the model is like trying not to yeah. you know learn so would you would you say that in any ways this impedes the training of the deep learning model um, that's a very good question i think in generally so i think to some extent i don't know because the, the problem is you might like even if like you have a network and it gets like 96% accuracy and now you quantize it, you still get 96% accuracy. Yeah. So either you have a free lunch or you're just not evaluating the thing where you trade off. Right. Yeah. But I mean, if let's say you get you still get your accuracy of 96%, but on some other data set that you don't care about, it's slightly worse. Right. This could still be a free lunch. Like as long as you don't care about the data set and it's not relevant for the application, you solved your task of having a smaller network and getting the same accuracy, right? Um, so that's one perspective. So I think there are probably trade-offs. You might just not be aware of them and they might not be relevant to the problem at hand. That's yeah. one perspective. The other perspective is that um, I think a part of, we have to realize that these models are still heavily over-parameterized or like, Okay, yeah. we don't know whether how heavily overparameterized they are, especially depending on what data sets we train on, right? We have a lots of parameters. And we also know that like if we train them using SGD, we usually end up in very similar regions, right? We use a lot of regularizations to, to have small weights and so on, right? Um, so it's very likely that a lot of the, the weight space we never really try out. Yeah. Right? So it might also just be that 
with quantization, right? I mean, we, we can train with quantization and it might just be that quantization, it, it adds a constraint on your weight space, right? It reduces your hypothesis space, right? Yeah. But it might still be that the hypothesis space is large enough. We might find different solutions, but it doesn't necessarily tell us that there, there might be a trade-off, right? Yeah. Um. So I think there are kind of different perspectives and I think to really kind of say, like definitely there's always a trade-off or there's no free lunch or there's like uh uh we, we always kind of pay a cost um yeah we might also have to evaluate like every possible every possible dimension and we are not doing that and it's also not relevant for a lot of tasks um and yeah maybe we are also just lucky in that we we have like all these parameters and like the regularization, the data augmentation, the network architecture, all of that already constrains the hypothesis space. So maybe yeah. using quantization on top that also constrains the hypothesis space, but maybe like in this hypothesis space, there's still kind of a lot of good solutions. Only that without quantization, we find different solutions. And with quantization, we find we, we find like um, slightly other solutions essentially. Um, I'm not sure, what do you think? I mean, you, you played around with binary networks. Uh, what's what's your take? Did you get the same results? Yeah, we, we did get. Yeah. I think there there was a decrease of I think zero point zero one percentage, but yeah. I think the the like we 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 did that trade off where we said that oh we we optimize. I think there was a decrease of, um, I forgot the perf. I think it was something around the percentage of thirties. So like there mm. was a decrease in thirty percentage in computation time. We we used the same resources, so there was no way of. But we used a higher batch size because we were able to load in more data because we were trying to decrease the model size. Yeah. So that was the idea in that one. But like I'm, I'm but I agree with that one because at some point I would say I would try to retract that question is like. I wouldn't say that it, there is no free lunch, but I would think there is like kind of redundancy that what we might be doing right now, because I'll mm. give you one example for the, the for the same project that I, I just mentioned earlier for the brain age model, right? So we have like three 3D images of 7,000. So we have 7,000 3D images. That's like a huge uh, data chunk. It's like around 200 gigabytes of data that I'm trying to use when I'm using ResNet 18 model. And this was like completely, this was not even my purpose to, introduce something like quantization or bit errors, but it used to take me four days to train one model for like 80 epochs. <laughs> yeah. And like 80 number, like even I figured out after like I knew that this was like the kind of the stable curve where it is not overfitting. And so whenever my whenever I would go back to my advisor, she would say, oh, do this, like, let's try this. And I had to wait for four days. So that used to irritate me, right? Like if mm -hmm. I did something wrong, it will be only. So that's when I think when I learned about the floating point, uh, uh, floating point, uh, precision that PyTorch has, right? So 16, 32, 64, and the by default one I think uses um, 32, I think. So that is the time like one of my lab mates said, like you, you should just try with 16 because yeah. that will just help you. And it, you you can actually fit in much more batch size because I was limited. I, I mean, I was using 800. So I was lucky that my lab has 880 gigabytes, but even with that one, so completely, I was able to replicate all the results as it is, all the trends, like the bias trends that I was trying to work on and mitigate, I was able to replicate everything. And that like I was, do, I was able to do that in less than like, I think 1.5 days or something, it was similar yeah. to that. And I was like, wow, like, am I was I doing anything redundant? So it's it's not exactly freelance. But it's like, if I started with eight bit or 16 bit precision, 
anything above that is like just unnecessary unnecessary computation mm. so it, it it would be like basically your work that you did over here is like just maybe trying to have a threshold above which you can say oh this was all redundant it's not like yeah. free lunch but it's like extra lunch like you don't want to eat extra than what you're hungry for so it's something something like yeah, that yeah I, that's that's a great story um and and i can feel that i mean i think yeah in a lot of cases there are also like real world constraints that in your case, for example, I mean, you could, you could still train it in four days, right? But I mean, there might be like researchers out there or models out there that you like, if you train it with without conversation or something, you might never really convert properly. You might not yeah. be able to do the same number of epochs, right? You might not be able to fit the batch size into RAM and so on, right? So I think in a lot of sense, and that's why I'm not sure if there's a free lunch, right? But I think it's just like, we have limited like we have limited capacity to do experiments, both in terms yeah. of time and in terms of resources and so on. So there might be a trade-off, but we might just not be aware of it. There might we might just not observe it because the the ideal thing of like training everything on all the data for as long as it needs on um, full float, floating point precision that might in a lot of cases that's just not an achievable goal. So you don't yeah. know which number you would get. Maybe you would get a percent more, but you never observe it, right? So I think there are kind of a lot of lot of things to that. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. My experience was was too that like above eight or definitely above 16 bits, it's usually, it really doesn't make a difference anymore. And it kind of speeds up your computation quite a bit. On the other hand, of course, it's a time thing, right? I mean, when deep learning started, like, yeah, you need to have this technology available, right? Because- yeah. For you, like if you would have to do like two research projects simply to get like binary networks working, this would have been a different story. But in your case, it seemed like you could just use like existing technology and try it out and it helped yeah. immensely. And that's that's great, right? I mean, it's great that people worked on that a couple of years ago and you can just use it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think personally for me, this this field is like very exciting for me, at least like even if it is not nothing a part of my PhD, because at the end, before I started my PhD, I still call myself as an engineer. And like it, the idea of just optimizing things, optimizing it for the sake of resources or time limits is something like I, I just get fascinated. Like even even till date, like on weekends, I tend to work on uh, my existing code and just make it efficient. Just make yeah. it like it's like um, like using arguments. Like it, it could be just like very silly things, but if I want to replicate these results so that like if anybody were, were to step into my shoes and just use my code they can just mm. use it so like just making it more efficient in terms of implementing the code and also like running it on hardware is just something fascinating yeah. for me like i just try to um learn more and more about it no i agree it's a, it's a nice topic and i i mean in academia they are usually the incentive to do you don't have a direct incentive to do it right yeah. that's kind of the problem you don't have a direct incentive to have nice code and to like have it run efficiently and to optimize for your hardware but i mean in the end if you can run the same experiments and you can iterate in half of the time that's like a very tangible effect on your phd right you like mm -hmm. either you you do more projects or you can like run more experiments um so that's i for me, this was always a big factor, right? If I can spend like a week or two optimizing something <laughs> and on like on, I also enjoy doing it. So for me, it was kind of a win-win and I can yeah. run experiments quicker, right? That's, that's always nice to have. And yeah, again, I, I, I think it's very, very fortunate that we have a lot of these tools. Like it yeah. still takes time to implement everything, of course, but like a lot of the tools, if you would think about having to implement quantization yourself and 
like all the cooler stuff yourself you probably wouldn't but now it's like you can read it up and in a week or two you can just like half your time of iterations and that's that's great i think yeah and i'm gonna switch gears and maybe learn more yeah. about you apart from even just your research works because i think there is a fantastic amount of work that you have done um even outside of your PhD or research yeah. related. And I want to start with uh, something that also excites me to learn more about is like you're working at DeepMind, one of the coolest labs, like as a researcher, like when you are in your PhD, like it's like places like this that you want to be working at because it feels like there is a great amount of great research being done, impactful projects and great team sets. So in, in your terms, like when you join DeepMind from academia, what do you think are the most amazing aspects that you feel working at DeepMind is? And, and I know this is like a personal opinion. It could be just specific to you. Mm. What 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 excites you most working at DeepMind? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think there are a lot of different aspects. And it, as you said, it might be very subjective and, and very personal um, kind of decision and, and view on things. Um, I think a couple of things that that many people might agree with or might agree on is so first I think there's just like an incredible amount of of talent in general um and this of course is on the research side right so um if you if you want to do a PhD you of course select your PhD by like who you want to work with what you want to work on like what does the institute do is there kind of a lot of resources do you have like famous researchers from there do you have like to get people prices and so on, right? A lot of things you look at. Um, and at DeepMind, you have you have a lot of that. You have a lot of smart people, not only at one organization, but to a large extent also in, in one city, right? Um, in, in one office, essentially. And this makes a lot of difference, um, in my opinion. Um, and with COVID, of course, there's a lot of discussion about remote work and so on. And uh, But... It, it makes a difference because like a lot of the conversations you have um, kind of during lunch, during events, uh, you have with people that are very accomplished in, in machine learning, computer vision, NLP, and so on. And this, of course, has this has a lot of benefits. I mean, you, you, you have cool projects, you have cool collaborations, you are always on the edge of time. But for me personally, it also means that there's so many people that know more than me and have more experience than me and that I can learn from in various in various ways. And this doesn't only apply. So I'm, of course, talking a lot about the research because the research is what you publicly see from the mind. But I mean, the same the same the same is true for for engineering. We do uh, at DeepMind uh, or, or kind of alphabet in general. And. And also beyond that, right? I mean, organizational um, kind of program manager, management, product management, and so on. There are just a lot of smart people and a lot of people that 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 are very experienced in these things that you can learn things from. And I think for me, this was, I think, the key thing. And of course, I had the advantage of having done an internship. So I kind of knew some of the people that I, that, that I would be working with. And and. When it came to decision, I thought, yeah, I mean, are these people that you want to work with for a couple of years, are these people that you can learn from? And definitely, right? I mean, uh, not only because they are like, they're smart and accomplished and so on in my field, but some people I work with also have very different backgrounds, right? Um, come from different disciplines or have worked very extensively on specific topics that I don't know a lot about. And um, so for me, it was kind of a great opportunity to just like join an organization that 
that had just like a lot of opportunity to learn and grow basically during every lunch, basically during kind of in every project. And of course, like day-to-day work is you have your project and you can't just like work at the same time with everyone and learn from everyone. But it, it's still it's still nice. You know? And and there's kind of a lot of talks going on. And, and of course, to some extent, it also attracts external kind of talks coming in and so on. So I think that was for me the key factor besides that. And, and this also goes a bit into industry versus academia in general. But for me, I like the engineering part. I mean, we just talked about, right? I mean, I know a lot of yeah. PhD students, and this is not, this is really not kind of meant in a negative or positive way, right? It depends on w- during your day, what do you like working on? And there are people, and, and I would count myself, and from, from what you said, I would count yourself as that, that enjoy the engineering part. Right, that like to spend time on like having nice code and optimizing a bit and yeah. running a bit faster. And as well, there are people that are that are that that prefer to do the writing or the presentation and that are not too too keen about learning about the next quantization scheme and the new the new GPUs and how I can run it on, on the next cluster and so on. Uh, but I always like the engineering part. And um there's of course create the engineering talent at DeepMind 2. And a lot of great tools and DeepMind values engineering to a large extent. Um, and, uh, and I like that. I think the engineering is valued a bit more than, or significantly more in my opinion, than in academia. And it's one of my strengths, though. It, it was very natural to, to um, yeah, this was a, kind of a very good additional, additional point. Um, and then another part is also that I just, I knew that, in ter- but this might also be kind of a um this might also be due to kind of the stage of career you like in a phd you usually work on your own projects and mm. then of course as a postdoc as a professor and so on you have bigger and bigger projects you have more and more collaborators um but i felt deepmind has um a nice organizational structure where it facilitates working in in bigger teams um and um i would like to like in term like this was a contrast to my phd where kind of a lot of projects were driven by me and um we're kind of individual projects and so on and and i i um i wanted to try that out i really was curious um to work more in larger teams on like bigger bigger projects um and yeah longer term research problems and so on so i think these were a couple of the 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 key things for me really um but again we talked about like coincidence before i was also lucky that the people i worked with during my internship we got along very well we are kind of on the same page and and i think that's kind of a main or like a significant factor as well right um that i like i like the culture i like the team and so on so um these are of course very subjective right i mean people i get along with that doesn't mean that you get along with them but um well personally for me of course that's a bit factor yeah and i think the more in your you are in your research the mental rigor of your teammates mentor, uh, matter a lot so i think in research i've seen like it's it's the idea of thought process is very contagious if like if you have a set of people who are approaching a particular problem in a certain kind of way that's very addictive and if you find the perfect set like it motivates you because as a solo researcher like i would i don't know like unless you are like a 
brilliant person like einstein i don't know if einstein worked uh, solo or not but i think most of the people that i would know have come up with thoughts or works that has been really really critical and who 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 have always worked in groups because like a fantastic idea cannot be just a creation of one solo so i think and when you are working on and i would assume like deep mind just doesn't work on just one very narrow topic they have like a very bigger impact they're trying to work on something that's that's applicable to not just computer science domain or ai domain they are applying it on real world and that just begets the problem that okay i need to be much more inclusive of thoughts and inclusive of expertise and i think that's why i think uh, having having people who who align with you on a mental level is really important and especially in a research lab Yeah definitely I mean I agree it's like it's also learning different ways of of um of thought, of thinking right different ways of developing ideas and so on uh do, do you, you do you mostly work on on like in in your phd projects do you ha- usually have a lot of collaborations with phd students in your lab and stuff or Yeah I think I have been fortunate enough to actually like I would say I have the least amount of people I have interaction are computer science students because okay. my professor who funds my research essentially she's from industrial engineering background so oh, okay. I mean she had her background in mechanical then she did her phd in industrial and now it is I think since the last 10 years also she has been heavily invested in medical ai and uh, so obviously a lot of people in my lab they are from data science disciplines industrial engineering and there are just couple of computer science students and I I frequently communicate with people from medical background so these are like mds or people who are like experts in medicine they just understand ai for the sake of like it works it mm. does classification it gives you f1 score prediction score accuracy and all those kind of stuff but they don't understand the uh, working behind it so i think it's like a constant juggle and what i feel very very useful for me is like because i have to summarize my work in three different genres so when i'm working with my friend who's like a computer science uh, student i have to i have to talk to him in a certain way that yeah this is the nitty gritty details of what's going on under the model no no bs about it but then when i'm summarizing these things to my professor who necessarily doesn't know how exactly data augmentation works but she knows most of the stuff so that they can she can critique and then when i'm communicating this to a doctor he or mm. she doesn't really care about what model i use he doesn't care what resnet 18 means and what resnet 52 means he just knows that it's a black box what do i do with it so it's like this frequent like changing the hats into different uh different topics really helps me motivate and like mm. maybe get some new ideas that yeah if uh, if if like like don't get stuck up on data augmentation too much like the problem is much more bigger at hand or something something like that along those lines so yeah i mean yeah that's that sounds great i mean i yeah i think it's it can be challenging so i get that point but i yeah. think so it might be it's not a not something you optimize short term but i think it's a very valuable skill to learn that you like find the right level of a lot level of abstraction the right way to phrase it depending on who you yeah. talk to um and yeah i mean just like mirroring that to and the, the collaboration with ibm research for example it was the same right i mean there was somebody sitting there um probably with an electrical engineer background um telling me about like how static memory works and like what's the voltage and i was sitting there trying to explain and this it it really took a while um to to kind of find the right vocabulary and the right kind of language but it was very rewarding once you you were on the same page and you could actually work so uh yeah sounds like you have like a really interesting interesting setup yeah and i think like you said like it it brought even for in your case with ibm like it helps you 
figure out a problem that has like a real impact and it also helps mm. you with your thesis right like like you said like you connected it somewhere back to robustness so it i don't know if it helped or not but like it, in some cases it might also help you induce better thoughts when you're working with robustness like you might be mm. stuck up on some problem and it gives you a different perspective that okay what if i consider this problem like this and yeah. it helps me solve the problem oh but you also go back to your original thesis and saying oh why don't i just borrow this idea into my yeah. my this particular approach so it's very translational like the idea of um, getting the meta insights from research is very translational you can take from yeah. one thing to the other one definitely and maybe tying it back to to deep mind i just feel it, it takes commitment and it takes time to build relationships or to interact with people that have different thought processes or come from different backgrounds. Yeah. But I think every time you do it and you invest the effort, it's like you have basically one more way of thinking in your kind of tool belt. Yeah. And um, that's one thing where, where I think like just having a lot of smart people from different backgrounds is like a valuable thing. You can't learn like from all of them at the same time. And it's challenging. It's more friction at sometimes, but it's like if you do it step by step and, and you kind of invest time, it's I, I really enjoy kind of learning about these different ways of thinking and different approaches to research and so on. Um yeah. so yeah, for me this was always always a try. I can always recommend making decisions at least partly based on the per, the people you the people or the researchers in a sense you you are going to work with. Yeah.